This podcast is brought to you by DIA, the trusted global neutral forum for healthcare product development professionals. DIA, driving insights to action. The evolution of who knows what. Let's get real about patient engagement and talk to our experts about where we are today and what the future holds for enhancing patient engagement and the science of patient input. I am Pujita Vaidya. I'm an expert in patient-focused drug development and have spent over 11 years at FDA and industry, enhancing the collection and incorporation of patient input into medical product development and regulatory decision-making. I also sit on DIA's Global Annual Meeting Program Committee and chair the patient engagement track. Today, we welcome Dave DeBroncard, a cancer survivor, perhaps better known as ePatient Dave. Dave is a founding member of the HL7 FIRE Patient Empowerment Workgroup, member of the Patient Advisory Panel for the British Medical Journal, and member of the Society for Participatory Medicine. In 2019, Dave delivered the opening plenary speech on the patient experience and engagement at DIA's annual Euro meeting. Thank you for joining us today, Dave. It's great to be here. You know, throughout this incredible odyssey, it's all been very unexpected for me. There was never any strategy behind it. I just fell down a rabbit hole after surviving a near-death cancer. And then I discovered there was garbage in my medical record. And I ended up in the newspaper and people started inviting me to Washington. People have said that if my, if my odyssey were a Hollywood movie, everyone would say this only happens on Netflix. But I want to know the term e-patient existed long before this all happened to me. It means patients who are empowered, engaged, equipped, enabled. And although a lot of people don't know this exists, it's a real thing. Stacy is an e-patient. I'm an e-patient. There are lots of us. And the thing that I hope to help people realize in the course of the next few minutes is that there are patients here in the world who want to contribute to having the whole enterprise work out better. I would also like to welcome Stacy Hurt, a stage four cancer survivor and 24-7 round-the-clock caregiver for her son with a rare disease. In 2022, Paroxel appointed Stacy as patient advocacy ambassador, the first of its kind role for a CRO. She was also named among the Medica Life Top 50 Influential Voices in Healthcare for 2022. Stacy, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for moderating this important conversation and very honored to be joining Dave here today as well. So Dave, let's start with you. Could you please tell us what patient engagement means to you and when did this practice start? I'm an analytical thinker. I'm an MIT graduate. I've worked in high tech all my life. I can't approach a question like that without thinking, well, let's get specific. To me, patient engagement is the philosophy and practice of working with patients as somebody you think and work actively with, instead of just doing something to them or for them. Now, this is really important, and it's a big paradigm shift. It's a difficult mental breakthrough for a lot of people because throughout the 20th century, medicine went from a world where only doctors knew anything useful at the beginning of the century because patients didn't have access to the education or the journals or anything to by the end of the century, patients did have information and could consider it. I'm not at all saying I'm a doctor. Heaven knows I'm not a doctor. But 
when my life's on the line, let me tell you, I can understand a lot of stuff. There was a famous conversation in the last decade where Joe Biden, before he was president, was having a conversation with an EMR executive. And the executive insulted him saying, you wouldn't understand all this stuff. And he said, well, you know what? If I can see it, I might get from people who can help me understand it. And if my life depends on it, don't push me away. So my point is, many people were trained for generations to think of patients as the poor people who just don't understand how to save their own pathetic lives. And I'm here to tell you, we are not only eager to help, but we're kind of tired of being treated as crash test dummies. To me, engagement doesn't just mean invite me into your process. It also means listen to me as a thinking, potentially intelligent person who might have some ideas that you haven't thought of. I completely agree. Patient engagement, engagement really is a philosophy. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, patients want to be active partners. So thinking about this, Stacy, from the industry perspective, do you think there is a difference between how patients view patient engagement, as Dave has described, versus how industry views patient engagement? Yeah, it's a great question. When you start out, I think that they accept the definition as the same. And if you look up patient engagement, I think that patients and industry would agree on the definition that that is encouraging patients to make informed decisions about our own health. And it's this concept of shared decision making. But that's where the commonality ends, because I think that the views, as you said, are entirely different. And I think historically, industry viewed patients sort of like cars on an assembly line, especially in clinical research. You'd recruit them, you'd screen them, you'd enroll them, collect data on them, and then send them on their way. And I don't think there's any better illustration of this idea of tokenization than referring to patients as subjects in a clinical trial. And that's still going on. I think that we were all hopeful that COVID would bring us further along the awareness curve, and, and certainly it has, but I just heard that term today, and it just makes me cringe referring to patients as subjects. I think that industry views patients as this tokenized notion, but COVID did help us in that finally industry saw we do need to listen to patients. We do need to hear their insights. They started incorporating focus groups and advisory panels to gain patient input. But again, until you close that feedback loop to say, because we listened to you, we did this. Because of what you said, patients, and your lived experience, we changed X. And certainly industry owes that to patients. If they're going to ask for our advice, they should incorporate it and they should apply it. So what brings this together as this agent of change management is a role like mine as an internal patient caregiver subject matter expert to bring those collective diverse patient voices to the table and speak firsthand for our stakeholder group. A physician, an executive, nobody is a proxy for the patient voice. We hold the patient voice. We bring that to the table to say what we need in clinical research and clinical trials 
that our needs are just as important as any other service line in a clinical trial, whether that's medical affairs, feasibility, site selection, regulatory, patient engagement is an equally important service line as, as all of those other ones in clinical research. Stacey, you make a good point about the need for industry to kind of have that feedback loop to actively communicate and inform patients of how that input and that engagement has changed their development programs and what that has actually meant needs to be communicated back. Dave, would you like to react? After all the preparation we did, I just listening to Stacey had another brain flash of something. Over the last 10 years, as a keynote speaker and social media advocate for patient engagement, patient empowerment, and participatory medicine, it's been incumbent on me. If I want to be understood by people who are scientifically trained, I need to understand the history of science. And there's this vitally important book called The The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, which was published about 60 years ago now by Thomas Kuhn. And he talks about paradigms. Now, paradigms are where all the people working in a field agree on what are the important things to be studying. And they write papers, they do research studies on it, and then they build on that. Now, the huge risk that I have discovered is what if the people being studied want you to work on something else that's not already in the literature? At present, there is no pathway for that to happen. You can't get NIH funding for something completely weird and off the wall. And I'll give you a splendid patient engagement example. I had a friend named Perry Cohen who was an MIT PhD and a Parkinson's patient. So these are no dummies, right? He and his other PhD Parkinson patient friends said, hey, scientists, you're working on this sham surgery thing We don't want you drilling holes in our skull just to prove that the benefit you found isn't placebo. Now, what do you do in that situation if you're an IRB or if you're doing research funding? What they said was, you think there's a placebo effect? Great. We have very few things happening in Parkinson's that have any benefit at all. We want you to do, go study that, figure out what happened. Now, you can easily see this is very different from the patient being the one who's lying on the the table getting a hole drilled in their skull. I hope our listeners will be able to really challenge their assumptions about how the whole process could work if we viewed the patients as contributors to the research process. Thank you, Dave. Patients as partners, patients as true contributors from the very beginning, from the early research that needs to happen all the way throughout the life cycle. So you, you both have really nicely articulated what patient engagement means to you and sort of shed light on the goals from both perspectives of patient engagement. I'd like to now talk about where are we now? What is the current state? And I'd like to ask you both to share some examples of some, some successes when it comes to engaging patients. And I'll start with you, Dave. Most of the good work that I see happening is not specifically in pharma. This is culture change. Make no mistake about it. Patient engagement is culture change. And in my speeches, I often draw parallels with the women's movement. I was in Boston in college in the 1960s and 70s when women started expressing things like the famous women's health book, Our Bodies Ourselves, was written in that era. And it's important to notice the very first edition that they published was titled Women and Their Bodies. And then they realized, what are we doing talking about ourselves in the third person? 
It's our bodies, ourselves. Culture change takes forever. Think about the culture change of patient engagement. In clinical care today, we have, as federal policy, open notes. Every one of us is legally allowed now to go in and view what the doctors wrote about us in the computer. And you know one thing that's been happening amazingly as a result of this? Patients who want to look, it turns out, are no longer clueless. The image of patients who don't know what's going on is starting to fall apart. And I've seen myself, my most recent visit to my eye doctor, the scribe who was typing things into their EPIC system, looked up and actually said, oh, you're one of those patients, because I already knew what had been in the previous visits notes. And in health practice, as Stacy touched on, we started with informed consent and then advanced directives. Now, these may not look like patient engagement, but these are definite steps already well accepted away from the patient is the know-nothing to this, the patient is somebody who has an opinion worth listening to and shared decision-making. Uh, the very idea that if there are a range of options, you know, it's funny, in one of my early speeches, I had an elderly doctor come up to me afterwards and say with a very kindly expression on his face, he was talking about the field of evidence-based medicine. He said, I don't want to have to practice medicine out of some cookbook. I like to do it my way. Well, how about if I want something different? My point is, each of these puts authority in the hands of the person who has the problem. They certainly ought to have a voice. None of it has disempowered professionals. Believe me, the doctors I work with today do not feel like somebody has taken away their license and I'm in charge. It's about participatory medicine. Each of these things we're talking about touches every one of you in the audience today, and neither was possible 20, 30, 40 years ago. We really are in the middle of a social change. And the reason we're talking about this in this podcast is to bring everybody up to the same level so we can move forward. Patient engagement really is a culture change, and we're slowly moving in the right direction. You know, you've provided great examples of really showing how um, we've been able to give patients more control of their care and keep patients more informed. Stacy, would you please share some examples from your perspective? I will talk about first the regulations that drive the entire remit of my role and pretty much hang over my bed at night. We always talk about you got to build from the regs. What we saw move this needle last year in 2022 was a bipartisan piece of legislation, the DEPICT Act, the Diverse and Equitable Participation in Clinical Trials Act. That was brought forward early in 2022 to boost diversity in clinical trials by requiring enhanced reporting for demographics to give better access to clinical trials for underserved populations and persons of color, et cetera, which was a long time coming and something that we've all been waiting for. And it's a shame that a global pandemic had to make it happen. And then what came from that was the Food and Drug Omnibus Reform Act of 2022, FEDORA, which galvanized DEPICT and therefore required that everybody's looking at required a diversity action plan in place for all phase three clinical trials. So again, something that should be happening that was always a nice to have and then became a need to have and then moved to a must have in drug development. 
So again, in terms of regulation, expanding access to clinical trials for those who need it, those were two critical pieces of legislation. Then we see in, in the current state of play two things that are encouraging patient input, and that is number one, the FDA patient-focused drug development PFDD guidance, which is guidance that shows how meaningful patient input fit-for-purpose clinical outcome assessments can be incorporated into clinical trials. And I think that came as a result of everybody saying, we want to talk to patients, we want to talk to caregivers, and we don't know how. So I just really want to thank the FDA for stepping up and, and putting forth these guidance documents. So you see something like that, and then you see the long COVID group, the patient-led research collaborative, come forward in collaboration through a PCORI grant with the Council of Medical Specialty Societies. They came forward with the patient-led research scorecards, which are invaluable guidance for how to work with patients. And it assessed four different areas, patient partner governance, integration into research process, patient burden, and research organization readiness. And what I like about the, the research scorecard is the zero is just an acceptable, the baseline is what's acceptable. And then there's two levels up from that for how you should be engaging with patients and how you can go from product-led to patient-led in clinical research, which is where we need to be. Those are some of the, the regulation and guidance that drive the whole remit of my role and really encourages patients like Dave and me to keep fighting for the patient voice to be incorporated and improve it from our personal lived experience. And I really like this, moving slowly from patient focus, the term that we've been hearing, to patient led. That just really shows how much more empowered patients can really be. Dave and Stacy, we've had an amazing conversation today. We have really come a long way when it comes to patient engagement and patient-focused drug development. Thank you for this review of where we've been in our current state. We'll turn to examine the future in part two of this podcast. With that, for DIA, I'm Pajita Vaidya. To learn more about this topic, visit us online at diaglobal.org.